Yes, we're going to be looking into the book of Micah. It's kind of, we're going to do a bit of an overview, but hope we land somewhere that reaches into each of our hearts. And to start off with, I want to imagine yourself in the opening scene of a film. You know, those kind of times where the camera's taking us through the clouds. It's all a bit majestic. It's building up to something. And so we're going through, gliding through the clouds for a moment before descending into a clear blue Middle Eastern sky. Uh, The drone camera swoops down to idyllic villages and vineyards. And there's a sense that times are prosperous. The buildings all seem to be in a good state of repair. Uh, The fields and vineyards are fruitful and well-tended. And the people are going about their business. There's plenty to do, plenty of smiles, and plenty of laughs. Or so it seems. All seems to be good in the world on the face of it. But then this drone camera swoops down to street level. It's kind of swooping around the streets, going around. And then the picture changes. Because we can see widows and their children being evicted from their homes. And that's their only security now in jeopardy. Farmers are being manhandled off their own land by hired muscle of wealthy landowners. And in other homes... Families are beginning to turn on each other. There's resentment uh, and mistrust all around. Well, surely the spiritual leaders must have risen above all this. Well, as the camera peers into the homes of the rich and the powerful and those in royalty, we see prophets taking backhanders for a favorable message for the great and the good. Now, this is the land, this is the scene into which Micah of Morsheth, sounds like something from Middle Earth, doesn't it? Morsheth, he was called by God to go and bring his warnings. Now, the the Old Testament book, have they given you time to get into Micah in your Bibles? Yeah? To get get there or browse on your thing. Um, Yeah, it's an Old Testament book and it dates from a time after the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was still known as Israel, and that had its capital in Samaria. And the southern kingdom of Judah, which was Micah's homeland, had its capital in Jerusalem. And the surrounding countries, they were actually fighting amongst themselves at this time, so it was peaceful for Israel and for Judah. And that actually meant a bit a time, a kind of comparative peace and prosperity for them. But sadly, there was a dark side to that situation. Because human nature being what it is, the wealthy landowners were taking over their holdings. And they were bribing judges along the way and evicting peasant farmers who'd worked their land together with their families. And this was actually causing mass migration to the cities where you were starting to get overcrowding and squalor and disease. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? And even the nation's leaders were in on the racket, on this racket. Uh, Micah was really scathing with his, his uh, what he says in uh, at the beginning of, uh, it says chapter 3 in my notes, I think it's up to chapter 2. Yes. Right, beg your pardon. Yeah. 
we're okay. Okay, so now you, you need to brace yourselves for this. Okay. I said, listen, you leaders of Israel, you who are supposed to know right from wrong. You are the very ones who hate good and love evil. You skin my people alive and tear the flesh from my bones, from their bones. Yes, you eat my people's flesh. Strip off their skin and break their bones. You chop them up like meat for the cooking pot. Then you beg the Lord for help in times of trouble. Do you really expect him to answer? After all the evil you have done, he won't even look at you. Now, pardon the pun, but he doesn't exactly mince his words, does he? That's some extreme language. But so often in prophecy, we find this kind of extreme talk to really get the message home. See, the thing was, God's covenant with his people, back when they left Egypt, was based on the premise of them living in community together for the common good of all. And if they failed to meet their obligations, judgment would follow. And across all seats of power, national, judicial, and religious, there was corruption. And if we go on to verses 9 to 12, listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and twist all that is right. You're building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. You rulers make decisions based on bribes. Your priests teach God's laws only for a price. Your prophets won't prophesy unless, they are, unless you are paid. Yes, all of you claim to depend on the Lord. No harm will come to us, you say, for the Lord is here among us. Because of you, Mount Zion will be ploughed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. Are you getting a flavour of this book now? God's patience had run out. Both kingdoms were destined to be captive, taken captive into exile. Now, whilst the nation of Judah would one day be re-established, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were going to be led away by the Assyrians and they would never return back to the homeland, not as a, a, a whole body of people. So we talk, we've talked about kind of a national level, the seats of power, uh, on the broader uh, kind of level, haven't we? But where I want us to abide today is in chapter 6, Micah chapter 6. Because this really marks the point where God's case against his people starts to really focus down on the individual. And we're going to pick up halfway through verse 2. So God is talking to his individual people now. He is laying, lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So he's reminding his people that their very existence and their presence in this land is down to him. He, it's, it's he who rescued them from death as slaves in Egypt. 
And it was he who fought their battles against the odds. And he, he's the one who gave them this homeland. But like spoilt children, they were throwing his kindness back in his face. And Micah resorts to kind of exaggerated language to emphasize what would really be a fitting response to God's love. This might be a, uh, we're coming to a verse that you might already know, but it's such a powerful, great verse. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly or to do justice and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. I love the simplicity of that verse. Three things for us to work on that encompass absolutely all of life. Justice, mercy, and a life of faith. Now amongst this whole book, this, these seven chapters of accusation and prophecy and, and baffling place names are three principles that are absolutely timeless in their application. So let's think for a while what it means to live by them. If we're going to do justice, we need to understand the biblical principle of justice. And in this context, I believe we're looking at social justice. Now, our, our society's understanding of social justice would probably be the quality of being fair and, and reasonable in, in terms of distribution of wealth, and opportunity and privileges and some might distill it even further down uh, and say it's like a code for good things that no one needs to argue for and no one dare be against though I would think that kind of thing is kind of what how we might term political correctness so if it's used as a, a pejorative uh, term as a derogatory term but, you know, when you, when, you, when you kind of sort of delve into social justice, the current thinking all seems to uh, come from uh, our friend Mr. Tim Keller, or is it Dr. Tim Keller? Uh, we can thank him for helping us to understand the biblical concept of social justice. And he draws our attention to two Hebrew words. And the first is mishpat. Okay? I've even put the Hebrew up there for you, just in case you can read that. Apparently, mishpat is the most direct translation for the word justice. And at its most basic level, it means to treat people equitably or equally. And part of, uh, part of that means that everyone gets a fair trial, being punished or acquitted on the merits of the case, 
regardless of race or social status. In other words, a punish fits the, crime, the punishment fits the crime regardless of who you are. But the words mean something more than this as well, because it also has to do with granting people equal rights. So mishpat really refers to giving people their due, whether that means punishment or protection or care. And I think that's a definition that most Western minds would would find quite reasonable too. And we can see how that was really speaking into Micah's time, can't we? Justice at that point in their history was anything but equitable. You got prophets preaching for pound notes uh, and you've got judges on the take but we also need to understand another Hebrew word for justice and it's zadikar or tzedakar I haven't quite got the problem it brummy doesn't kind of sound the same does it I suppose now this relates more to the principle of being just or living righteously the principle is, is that we live out our lives treating everyone with fairness and generosity and equity. And I'm going to quote Tim Keller to help us understand. I'm going to quote him directly. I think it's from his book, Generous Justice. He says, These two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is mishpat. It means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. Primary justice, or zadakar, is behavior that, if it was prevalent in the world, would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else. Therefore, Though Zadokar is primarily about being in a right relationship with God, the righteous life that results is profoundly social. So justice isn't, it's not just something we fight for, it's something we live out. And like I say, we can, we can readily see how the great and good supposedly of Judah were failing to do justice. But what about us? Is social justice something that we need to prioritize? Some say it's distracted from evangelism in the past. It's true that in the early part of the last century, there was a shift towards a, a social gospel, as it was known, of charitable acts uh, by more liberal parts of the, of the Protestant movement. And I saw it in the circle of churches in which my family grew up. Uh, my, my great-grandfather and his companions, um, they set up a mission church not far from where I live, uh, and they really preached the gospel with power and authority. But by the time of my childhood in the 1970s, it was kind of all about charitable acts and basically being a good person. And for all the time that I was in that church uh, as a youngster, I never really heard any mention of sin or repentance or, or coming judgment. And that, of course, that is tragic, isn't it? People aren't hearing the gospel properly. 
But sadly, the reaction sometimes of more gospel-centered churches was to retreat away from social action and purely focus on gospel preaching and discipling. And we can understand that, but the power of the gospel itself proves that there's error in both of these approaches. I like Don Carson's quote, D.A. Carson, Don Carson. Um, The gospel is the good news of what God has done, especially in Christ Jesus, especially in his cross and resurrection. It is not what we do. We'd say a hearty amen to that, wouldn't we? Because it is news, it is to be proclaimed. But because it is powerful, it not only reconciles us to God, but it transforms us. And that necessarily shapes our behavior, our priorities, values, relationships with people, and so much more. In other words, more than just being about our legal status, Uh, uh, more than just our legal status before God has changed. The sign of true, living, biblical faith in us is that we desire to transform the lives of others, the lives of others around us. It's the part of our very purpose as believers. Just think of Ephesians 2 verse 10. Uh, For we are God's masterpiece, created, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And also the supporting premise for our attitude towards social justice is that we believe that every human being is created in God's image, having dignity and value and worth. And that spurs us on to protect the vulnerable, uh, whether that's, uh, that's the young, the old, the unborn or the terminally ill, or maybe the disabled or the poor. And we also seek to protect important liberties, like freedom of speech or freedom of religion. Now, I know this concept of social justice isn't necessarily new for all of us here, And maybe to go around the room, you you would know already what burdens your heart. Maybe you know already what you need to speak up for. And I urge you to do so. Not to win God's approval, but because in Christ you are already approved. You are his child. The gospel has transformed your life and you can transform the lives of others. You can powerfully demonstrate the gospel through the work that you do in this area. And we're called to continue his work of turning the world upside down, being part of this global reversal that sees God's strength in our weakness. It's time to move on. We're also called to love mercy. Now, the the Oxford English Dictionary defines mercy as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. 
Now, I think that also speaks into our hearts regarding social justice. We're not only motivated by the rightness of the cause, but also deep love for the person involved as well. And like I say, it's a practical embodiment of the gospel of what God has done in our lives. Think of it this way. Just as Jesus pleads and intercedes for us before the Father's throne, so we can do for those who have no voice of their their own. We're kind of emulating what Jesus is doing for us before God, we can do for others. Now in all this, I think we have to ask ourselves a difficult question. I've been calling for us to get stuck in, to speak for others, and to show mercy. But have we, whether by deliberate action or failure to act, become the oppressors? By looking the other way, or walking on by, have we failed to show mercy? By looking after our own interests, have we trampled on the ne- over the needs of those who need our help? Are we the type of people that Micah was calling on to repent? It's important always that we examine our own hearts. Now, in this kind of overview of Micah's prophecies, I've so far focused on the accusations, haven't I? But Micah brought incredibly good news too. He looked forward to a time when the people of Judah would return from exile. Uh, back in chapter 2 we read, Someday I was right, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. And he promised that they would leave Babylon behind, rebuild their temple and be a nation once again. And that is actually what happened 70 years later, the exact time frame that God had promised. But there's an even greater promise, the reason for their restoration and for Judah's very existence. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah, Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the past, in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. And going on to verses 4 and 5. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, then his people will live there undisturbed. For he will be highly honored around the world. And he will be the source of peace. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. That took a lot of guts for me to do. <laughs> this is one of the Old Testament's, the Old Testament's most explicit references, isn't it, of the, the coming of Jesus, which was over 400 years later, maybe even 700 years later after Micah 
brought this prophecy. And it, you, know, you know what? It, it struck me only recently that when he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you remember, on, on, the, on the third day? And, it's, and he opened up the scriptures about all that said about him. He would refer to this verse 400 years or more after. He would point out, look, it was written about me. It was written about me here. It's an honor to be able to read it ourselves, isn't it? And that's the wonder of it all. We can delve into the depths of the Old Testament and find that every page whispers his name. The reason for God's abundant patience with this stubborn nation of Judah was to save, to save stubborn people like you and me. Now, he was the ultimate social justice warrior in a way, wasn't he? Look at the reversal of the social order that he kick-started. There was healing for beggars, for those who were considered unclean. Uh, response to faith in the hearts of Roman soldiers, the, the occupying enemy. Uh, and he forgave people who were sexually immoral, that were outcasts and on the fringes of society. But he truly laid into the religious tyrants and the swindlers in the temple, didn't he? Jesus was turning the world upside down. But lastly, let's look at Micah's parting words of worship towards the end of the book in chapter 7. Because they ring just as true for us. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean you will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. So this is the man with whom we are told to humbly walk. To walk humbly with our God. What does that look like for us? Well, my thought is, that he's, he's not part of our kind of entourage, you know. More likely, we're part of his. He's not the hired muscle that we call on to fight our fights, nor is he a divine Wookiee that we call out to roar and punch out everyone in our way. Now, he's the one that we follow after. Now, something that kind of helps me uh, along the way in my walk with Jesus is how I picture Jesus in my mind's eye. And that's the question I asked of you. How do you picture Jesus? Not that we need graven images or anything like that. But sometimes I think if we visualize him, it helps us to consider how we walk with him in our lives. Do you see him mainly as a loving father or a, a wise teacher? 
Well, for me, I kind of see him as like the best ever boss, a leader, and a friend, a captain, and a comrade. Someone who I, look, I can look to without ever being let down or disappointed. And based on what I read in the Bible, he'd have a, cho- he'd have a joke with me, but his banter would never be cruel. And if ever he give, gave me a telling off, I deserve it. Tough love, t- tough love when needed, but he'd always be seeking to build me up. That's how I see him. To walk humbly means that he takes the lead. But he will give me a shove forward into new ground when he knows I'm ready. And that's kind of that loving father thing going on as well, isn't it? Okay, go on, you can do this. And to misquote Tolkien or Peter Jackson, when you close your eyes and think of Jesus in this way, I always think, here is one I can follow. Here is one I can call king. Maybe you visualize him different. I trust that there are all these qualities that we've talked about and so much more that warms our hearts and helps us to follow him. Now my final encouragement in walking humbly with God is this. Talk to him. You know, I'm so amazed at all that he's done for me. Yet so often, I'm kind of like a teenage son when it comes to communicating with him. I've got his permission. I've got his permission. He's got broad shoulders. (laughs) You know, those times when I walk through the door, all right, son. So where you been? Places. Who have you seen? People. What have you been doing? Things. You kind of know that kind of long. <laughs> I sometimes think that some of my prayers, my prayer life can be like that kind of grunt to God. I'm not kind of opening up enough to Jesus, to, to, to the Lord, to, to that conversation with him. And I'd ask you to pray for me with that. Um, and if you know Elijah, you know he can talk, really. He's not short of his voice, is he? Yeah. So I'd urge you to pray for me in this. And I'd encourage us all to walk and to talk with Jesus in every part of our lives.